The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and prayer. And as we pray to you right now, we know that the God of the universe is hearing us and that you care for us and that we can boldly approach your throne because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so now as the word goes forth, I pray that it would move in power in our hearts and that it would make us a people, a healthy church who are devoted to the word and prayer, who serve one another and care for each other's needs. Also that praise might go forth from our lips and to the ends of the earth. So we ask for these things and so much more than we could even ask or imagine this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It's really a a privilege to be able to be here uh, in this capacity this morning in preaching. I just love when I get the the opportunity to um, step up from behind the piano and to share the Word of God with you guys. So it is an honor and a joy, and I can't wait to dive into this passage with you all. We're continuing uh, our march through the book of Acts, and we've come to the point in the story where the early church is starting to experience some growing pains. So up until now, we've seen the Spirit descend on the church. The gospel is going forth. The apostles are continuing to preach and teach the Word of God despite opposition and persecution. And through all of that, we've seen the Lord building His church in huge numbers. Many are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So this is the the very beginning of the Lord raising up his witnesses that will take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. So just think about this for a second. Just let it land on you that we are the ends of the earth right here in this room. We're sitting in this room as a church worshiping Jesus Christ thousands of years later and thousands of miles removed from Jerusalem. And where did it all start? It started right here in the church in Acts. And from there, the gospel of the risen Christ has spread like wildfire to millions of people so that there will be worshipers in eternity from every tongue and tribe and nation. The resurrection power of Jesus through his spirit working amongst the church is the reason that the gospel has not stopped spreading to more and more people throughout history. And what we're seeing here in these early books of the, of the book of Acts, these early chapters, is the beginning of that spread. So in the previous chapters, we've read accounts of thousands of people at a time, right? 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 in chapter 4 being saved. It's amazing to see, but what we see in our chapter now is with more people comes more problems, right? We see this everywhere in life. The smaller the group, the easier it is to manage, but as a group begins to grow and expand and become more diverse, and more and more people begin to relate to each other, the more complexities become involved. Kids, think about this. When you're playing with your friends, if you have your friends over to play, it's pretty easy to decide what to do when there's just one, right? You and another friend. 
Maybe you can both just agree on the same game or the same activity to do, or at least you can take turns one right after another. But now think about the times when you've had a big group of friends over. A lot of your friends come over to play. Maybe it's a birthday party or something like that. And you're all trying to decide what to play and how to get along. It's harder, right? It's harder. Everyone wants to do something else. Everyone has their own favorite game. And of course, someone's not going to do what you want to (laughs) do. And the bigger the group of friends get, the tougher it is to play nice together. Well, it's the same with adults. (laughs) And even in the church. So what we're going to see today is that as there are more people getting saved and becoming part of the church in Jerusalem, the church will need to be organized intentionally in such a way that cares for all the different peoples that are there, all the different needs met, diverse peoples coming together in the name of Christ. And in this passage, we see the emerging structure of the early church. We see a congregation of diverse people. We see leaders and the apostles devoted to the word and prayer. And we see the appointment of servants, servants to help care for the practical needs of the whole church. And this emerging church structure, very beginnings of it we see right here, these lead to the offices that we see in the, in the New Testament church of elders and deacons that we see laid out in books like Timothy and Titus. So let's look at all those elements one at a time. Let's see how the structure is meant to care for a growing, diverse people with the goal of loving and leading them to greater praise. So point one, who is this congregation that's here in Jerusalem? Who are these people that have come together simply because they all believe in the same Jesus? That's why they're here. That's why they're all getting together. So look at at verse one. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose because, against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So as we've already seen, the number of disciples is growing at a very, very rapid pace. And as their numbers grow, a dispute emerges between two different groups in the church at Jerusalem, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Now, who are these two groups? Well, the Hellenists are Jews But they're Jews whose primary language isn't Hebrew. These are Jews whose primary language is Greek. They're Greek-speaking, cultural Jews. More than likely, these are Jews that have spent much of their lives living in different places around the Greco-Roman Empire and have assimilated into these different cultures. And so these these are Jews of the diaspora that have been dispersed and are living in different places and have been scattered, and for some period of time, they've lived in these non-Jewish cultures and societies, and then for whatever reason, now they're here back in Jerusalem, perhaps for Pentecost, perhaps they want to live out their their, their end days uh, back here in Jerusalem. We're not exactly sure, but they're here. They're here. They're back in Jerusalem. And if we we take a peek just slightly ahead— In verse 9, we see that there are Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and Asia present at this time. So these are the Hellenists, these these Greek-speaking, culturally different Jews. And then we have the Hebrews. And these are the Jews that are still part of the Jewish culture there in Jerusalem. They still mainly speak Hebrew. They follow Jewish customs. They probably consider themselves more purely Jewish than the Greek speakers. So those are the two different groups that we have here. 
and the Greek-speaking, culturally Greek Jews are complaining that their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So they're making sure that those in need, such as the poor and the widows, have food and were cared for. And this was a priority even now in the very earliest church. We see that here. And the Hellenists are raising their hands and saying, "Uh, excuse us, our widows are being neglected. We're being overlooked. So even in the earliest church, we see this claim of partiality. The claim of partiality is not a new sin. It's not a new claim in the church. This has been around since the beginning. And it's happening because there are two groups of people coming together in the name of Christ that would otherwise have no reason to come together. And that's what the gospel does, doesn't it? Right? That's, that's what the gospel does. The gospel is for every tribe and tongue and language and culture and nation. And all who will believe are united to Christ and therefore are united to one another as brothers and sisters. So what you get in the church is people from all different backgrounds, all sorts of cultures, all sorts of preferences and experiences and ways of life, ways of doing things, coming together. And these people often have no other earthly reason to come together. Think how weird a diverse church like that looks to a watching world. People that by worldly standards shouldn't even like each other, must much less love each other, right? Coming together to learn, to, lead, to love each other, covenanting, covenanting together in Jesus to care and serve and love one another. Why? Why? Because of Jesus. Jesus breaks down barriers and unites diverse groups of worshipers as one to show a watching world the beauties and the worth and the majesty of Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons why we love ethnic harmony here at Bethlehem. What a testimony to the worth and beauty of Christ that different people would come together in love out of a common love of Jesus. We're one. We are one in him. Despite our differences, despite our backgrounds, we are one in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that the differences just go away. So, we come together in Christ, but there are still cultures, there are still preferences, there are still customs. And sometimes, we're prone to fight. And with more people, the bigger the problems can be. So the apostles recognized this, and they proposed a solution to this problem of the charge of partiality. So that leads us to point two. Look at verses two to four. Verses two to four say, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching and the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles recognized that their primary duty was to to pray, to be devoted to prayer, and to teach and to preach the word of God. So basically, they said, we need help here so that we can keep doing what we are primarily called to do. 
So what we're seeing here is the beginnings, just the, the seeds of the office of elder here in the early church. Now, it's true, the word elder isn't here in this passage because the official office of elder hasn't officially been established yet. But again, with greater numbers of people to care for, the greater the organizational need becomes. And so the 12 apostles are setting themselves apart for their primary ministry of preaching and prayer, and then they ask the congregation to appoint servants or deacons. It's the same root word to help them care for the diverse needs of a diverse people. And what's so amazing is that this is the very structure that we see explicitly prescribed in the later epistles when the church is more established. So in 1 Timothy and Titus, we see that there are to be elders in every church who are able to teach, to guard sound doctrine, who labor in preaching and in teaching and caring for the souls of the church that God has entrusted to them. And then we also see in 1 Timothy the office of deacon, the official office of deacon. And the word deacon simply means a servant. That's all it means. So that those would be set apart to serve the practical needs of the church. And we see that office officially established. And what we're seeing here in Acts 6 is that emerging structure in the earliest church with what I would call something like proto-elders and proto-deacons. You have leaders devoting themselves to the word and prayer and other leaders appointed to serve the needs, the practical needs of the people. And I think we can learn a lot about that structure of elders and deacons even from this passage. So, a word about elders. You notice what the apostles are doing here is giving up something, serving and waiting tables, to focus on their main calling of preaching and of prayer. But the thing that they're giving up, that serving and waiting on tables, is still a good thing. In other words, the, the apostles aren't saying, we don't care about the widows of those Hellenists. No, instead, they're admitting that there's simply too much for them to do alone, and so in order to remain faithful to their calling, they're asking for help. They're asking for help. So what should land on us in regard to what will become the office of elder for elders, what should land on us is how, it's, how important it is to have elders who are fiercely committed to the word of God and to prayer. This is why Paul says that an elder who labors in preaching and teaching is worthy of double honor. It isn't because the elders are so great. They're not worthy of double honor in and of themselves. It isn't because that. It's because we should mainly want elders who are not great at programs or flashy tricks or, or gimmicks or anything like that to trick people to come into church. We should want elders who know that the things that change lives, that lead to sanctification, that God uses to save people are the word and prayer. That's the kind of elders that we should want. The apostles point, appointing others to practical needs, that doesn't mean that they think that they're too important. It doesn't mean that they're above the task. It doesn't mean that they think that serving practical needs is just down here below them. No, it means that they know the importance, the absolute necessity of the faithful proclamation of the word and of time committed to prayer. That's what they're saying here. 
Not because the apostles and themselves can change people, but because God uses the word and the prayer to change people. That's how it's happened all the way up until now in Acts. The word is preached. The apostles get together and pray, and people are saved. So, as your elders here at the South Campus, just know that we desire with all of our hearts to be this kind of elders. We want to be men who know the word, who are able to teach the word, who live the word in our lives, who apply the word and guard sound doctrine. We want to be men who are devoted to praying for ourselves, for you, for the church, and for our neighbors and nations. We want to have our values set on the right things, the things that God says he uses to change the world. His word will not return void. Isaiah 55, 11. Draw near to the throne in prayer for your well-timed help that's available from God himself. Hebrews 4, 16. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. Not because we're too important to get down into the nitty-gritty of serving tables, but because we know that our primary calling is to be about the spiritual care of a people through God's appointed means of grace. And in doing so, we're not ascribing worth to ourselves, hopefully, but the word and prayer. So, so kids, have you ever hit a baseball with a baseball bat? The bat works pretty well for hitting the ball, right? It's the tool designed for that job. Now, how would it go if you tried to hit a baseball with a feather? How would that go? It wouldn't work very well. You could swing that feather back and forth and try to hit the ball, and it just wouldn't work. And you could give that feather to the biggest, strongest, most talented baseball player in the world, and he wouldn't be able to hit the baseball with a feather. It just wouldn't work. Why? Because in that situation... It doesn't depend on the amazingness of the person holding the feather. It depends on the fact that he isn't using the right tool for the task. The elders are devoted to the word and prayer because they are God's tools for building his church. We can't be mainly about gimmicks and tricks and flashy schemes and worldly wisdom because no matter how awesome we are, those things won't build a healthy, durable, resilient church that worships Christ through the sufferings of this world. Those things are feathers. Only the word and prayer will build the church in the working of God himself through his spirit, through those appointed means of grace. So the apostles were devoted to those things, and we as elders want to be devoted to those things as well. And we want you, as a people, to be devoted to those things, too. To be devoted to word, the word and to prayer along with us. That's why a lot of our sermon applications, week in and week out, seem kind of repetitive and boring. <laughs> the word, prayer, love one another. The word, prayer, love one another. Over and over and over again. It's not because we're out of good ideas. It's because those are the good ideas. Those are the good ideas. That's the whole point of our, our Lent guide that we just put out. So if you haven't seen this, there's some out by the, by the welcome table. You can also get it online. But this is just a guide to get us all together in the Word and guided times in the Word 
and in prayer and in fasting to go after Jesus together with one another leading up to Holy Week. That's why we're doing this. We want to be a people that's about the word and prayer together as a family. So I would encourage you to check this out. So in order to be devoted to those things, the word and to prayer, the apostles asked for help, and they asked the congregation to appoint appoint servants to oversee the distribution of the food to the Hellenist widows. So that leads to the third point. Look at verses 2 to 6. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So the whole assembly gets together, the full number, which is just wild to think about, given the the number of people who are in, in the church in Jerusalem right now. The whole number gets together, and they appoint seven men to oversee the distribution of the food to the Hellenist widows. The apostles call this ministry serving tables, which likely has to do with the fact that they were distributing food. And as we've already said, these proto-deacons likely lead to the formal office of deacon in the later New Testament church. So from this passage, what can we learn about deacons? What can we learn about that office of deacon? Well, for starters, these deacons were appointed to address a specific need in the church. With more people comes more problems, and a specific complaint arose, and so they were deputized to meet that need. Which I think means that a good deacon ministry in a local church should be aimed at the specific needs of that given church. So what we're doing here at the South Campus of Bethlehem is we're trying to know our people, and to see our people, and to hear our people in such a way that we can know what the most pressing, urgent needs are and then see if they might be met by our our deacons. So, one one more example for the kids here. When you or maybe one of your younger baby brothers or sisters gets hurt, sometimes do your parents ever ever kiss the owie, kiss the boo-boo, kiss you where it hurts, right? Your baby sister hurts her finger and your mom kisses her finger. Now, how weird would it be if your sister hurt her thumb and your dad bent down and kissed her elbow? That wouldn't make any sense, would it? That'd just be weird. That isn't where it hurts. No, they kiss where the owie is. And we want our deacons to help serve where the needs are. We want to know our people, know the needs, and then deputize the deacons to serve where those needs are at. So, I just want to take a second to tell you how awesome our deacons are here at the South Campus. We have awesome deacons. Yeah, that's great. They all have such huge servant hearts, such a desire to love us as a blood-bought family, to assist the elders in caring for the needs of our people. We're blessed by our South deacons. 
So all of our deacons, they, they kind of assist in meeting general needs, so whatever practical needs arise. They put their heads together, they meet regularly, and they come up with plans to address those needs. And then what's really cool is that many of our deacons have specific roles where they specialize in care where the specific needs are. So just a, just a couple examples. We have Mary Hendricks, who oversees our meal ministry. And if you've ever benefited from that meal ministry, you know what a machine it is. It's incredible. We know that there is a need in our church for when people have babies or are sick or are going through some type of suffering or hardship, meals really help. And so she oversees that. She meets that specific need. And then we have Mary Horning, who works alongside Joshua Oakley as our deacon for disability ministry. So we know that we want Bethlehem South to be a place that welcomes and loves and serves those with disabilities. And Mary has such a huge heart for that and serves us so willingly in that area, meeting that need. And then we just elected Matt Kluger. It says our deacon for security and emergency response because we have a need. And so he's stepping in to help us oversee that need. And Greg G., he helps give financial advice and planning planning advice to anyone who might need that. And Bonnie Williams helps us to oversee our widow ministry. And Jack and Marilyn Olwell help us manage a practical needs team, and they help us in our hospitality. And in all these ways, our deacons at the South Campus are aimed specifically at our church, at our people, to love and to serve and to care for our family. It's such a blessing to have deacons like that. Now, just to say it out loud, this doesn't mean that we expect the deacons to do all the work around here. (laughs) They couldn't. It isn't like we've elected deacons to meet all the practical needs and therefore no one else around here has to do any of the work. We want to be a people where all of our members are loving and serving one another, knowing one another, meeting needs, giving sacrificially, even praying for one another and speaking the word to one another. See, it isn't just the elders that pray and apply the word to the congregation around here, and it's not just the deacons that meet the practical needs. So Mary Hendricks doesn't make all the meals herself, right? No. She coordinates the meal ministry of the congregation. And Matt Klugertz coordinates the security ministry, and Jack and Marilyn help to coordinate the practical needs team. And in all of these ways, and so many more, so many more, they help us serve one another. They facilitate our family care for one another. And when we're doing all of that, when the body is serving and and loving and using their gifts, the body makes the body grow up in love, like it says in Ephesians chapter 4. That's the goal. The deacons help us to care and actually be the body of Christ. To one another as brothers and sisters. So let me just take one moment to say that if you're a member here and you have a practical need that you need help with, whatever it might be, our deacons would love to hear from you. They would. So we've just created this brand new email address, deacons.self at Bethlehem.church. Deacons.self at Bethlehem.church. So you can email that address at any time and your need will go straight to our deacon team. And they'll do their best to help mobilize the body to meet that need so that we can be a people who truly loves and cares for one another.
That's the goal, and that's the hope. And we have deacons that love to help us do that. So count your blessings. All right, so the application. The church is growing. More diverse people are coming together. The church is structured to meet the needs, to free the apostles up to the word and prayer, and to have these servants who are caring for these practical needs. This structure is a good idea, and it's the seed for the structure that we see in the New Testament and that we even practice here at Bethlehem today. It's here. It's right here. And what's the result of that structure? Why? Why think through how to structure the church in such a way? Well, look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, the apostles were freed up to devote themselves to the word in prayer. The deacons were serving the widows and caring for the church. And the word increased. The word increased. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased. The outworking of a healthy church is the people are loved. And the praise of God increases. It increases amongst the church and it spreads to new people to begin to praise God. So our hope and our earnest prayer is that where there are more people, there wouldn't just be more problems, but that through the local church, where there are more people, there will be more praise. That's our hope. That's our goal. That's why we want to be a healthy church. Let's be this kind of church where the elders preach and pray and the deacons help us serve one another and we work on being healthy and caring for the least among us showing no partiality, laying down our interests for the sake of others, following in the very footsteps of Christ. Why? For what? So that the praise of Jesus Christ might increase in our church, to our neighborhoods, and to the nations. That's what we want to be as a church. In our city, in our state, in our world, praise Because of the early church here in Acts, the praise of Jesus Christ has spread to the ends of the earth, and here we sit in Lakeville, Minnesota. And it doesn't need to stop here. It doesn't. We don't want it to stop here. We're trying to be faithful to the Bible with elders and deacons and an engaged congregation so that God might be glorified to the ends of the earth. It doesn't just stop with us. We don't love each other only for the sake of our holy huddle on Sundays. Instead, we try to be a healthy church because it's from healthy churches that the gospel goes out and other healthy churches spring up and praise multiplies. So, catch a vision for that this morning. Would we be that kind of church with that as our goal? Would you pray, oh God, make us one people. Make us one. All of our diverse backgrounds and preferences and ways of doing things coming together united in Christ. Make us one so that we don't fight and vie for power or our own self-interests, but we come together to worship Jesus. Pray for us as elders to be devoted to the word of God and to prayer. Pray for our deacons to help us be a servant-hearted people 
serving one another with the gifts that God has given us. And pray that all of that, all of that structure, the way that things are working as a healthy church, pray that that would lead to the praise of God's glory and grace spreading like wildfire from our little Bloodbot family here in Lakeville, Minnesota. Let's pray. So, Lord, we want to be that kind of church. Help us to be, to be devoted to the Word of God and to prayer. Help us to love one another, to live out our union in Christ so that we're serving, so that we're caring. Help our deacons to, to, to know our people and to reach out. And I pray that in all these things, praise might increase. Would you increase the Increase the praise of your son, Jesus, not only among us as a congregation, but in those that you might use the word and prayer in those that we come in contact with to increase your praise in our neighborhoods, in Lakeville, in Minneapolis, in Minnesota, and to the ends of the earth. Do it because you love your own glory and you love your church. Make us one, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.